Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I'm on my I'm all on my wee own in the studio today because Dave and Jez are both buried in marking assignments. But I'm joined on the line by my MMU colleague Deborah Linton. Hi Deborah, welcome to Bang to Rights for the first time. Hi, thank you for having me. We're, you're currently on maternity leave, but you've come on the podcast especially this week because we're going to be looking at journalist safety, whether that's their online safety and well-being or whether it's about their physical safety in conflict zones or reporting civil unrest. Because, Deborah, you've had plenty of experience of both of these, haven't you? Yeah, I have been out in my career as a political journalist to cover the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then on a more local level, when you talk about civil unrest covering riots here in Manchester kind of experience that quite a lot of uh, experienced journalists have had and there are a lot of safeguards that you really need to have in place before you even step on the plane or pull out your passport or book mm. your tickets but we'll come to those in a moment we'll come back to that in more detail later just to kick things off I wanted to look first at issues around online safety and the mental well-being of journalists at work because the issues were a prominent part of the annual conference in November of the National Council for the Training of Journalists we heard in the last episode of Bang to Rights from Joe Webster at Reuters about their work to help staff with some of, of the mental health issues around coping with trauma. However, being bombarded with potentially traumatic material can take many forms, as I found out at the NCTJ conference when I met Stephanie Finnegan from Leeds Live and the Leeds Examiner. She's the reporter who successfully challenged the reporting restrictions on covering the contempt of court case against Tommy Robinson. I met Stephanie and her former media law lecturer, Carol Watson, from the University of Sunderland in one of the busy conference rooms at Harlow College. So I had been covering a series of linked trials at Leeds Crown Court. It was about the fifth month and we were in the second trial. The UDL had showed up to outside court for protests um, throughout the trials but this was the first time that I'd seen Tommy Robinson outside and when I first seen him he was had his phone in front of his face like he was taking a selfie so he was obviously broadcasting to Facebook. Um, had so, you had any warning that this was going to happen beforehand? Did you Were you expecting it? No absolutely none so it was completely out of the blue. I mean the like I said the EDL um, showed up throughout the trial but Tommy Robinson himself hadn't been at the hearings at at the trials at Leeds Crown Court. He had been at Kirkley's Magistrates Court when it was first first there, but I mean, this was just a random day. I don't even know why this particular day was the day, like if he was free, what, like his calendar was just free that day. I don't know why he was there that day, but um, yeah, I spotted him before I went in and then he was arrested um, a couple minutes later. And I just, he, so obviously he wasn't even on the court list. So you didn't even know what courtroom he was gonna be in. You just had to, I just went to the courtroom where the grooming trial was being heard and stuck around until he was in the dock. And what, tell, tell us a little bit about what happened because the, the, you, you were saying there that it happened really quickly and you were expecting this is a contempt thing, it'd take much longer. Yeah, so it was unclear what was going to happen. At first, I just thought that he would have... I mean, I, I th at first, I thought he was just going to go to the police station. I didn't even realise he would be brought into the courtroom. And then I thought, even if he did have a brief hearing, that it would just be sort of a, a next date set. Um, but yeah, it was. it's very unusual how that sort of happened. And... Um, yeah, it was. It was just. It was dealt with very quickly. And then, and then the shutters came down on it. From your point of view, you weren't able to say anything about it. Yeah. So obviously, he had broadcast his arrest to Facebook because he was arrested during his Facebook Live. So the National started to report on it, but the judge, when he imposed the reporting restriction, um, about an hour after that, he said that it also applied to his arrest, which it was. 
you, he doesn't have the power to do that, but it was sort of like, well, can we disobey him? So there was an issue with that and we had discussions with the news desk and the editor decided that we should err on the side of caution um, while the Nationals ran it. Um, and then we just had to keep quiet about the results, even though it, the, his supporters had put it on Facebook and it was all over the internet um, all over the weekend, and which was bank holiday weekend. So it was the next three to four days I had to keep quiet about it until I could get into court on the Tuesday morning and speak to the judge. So tell me about, about that, because that's, that's one of the things that we talk about in law lectures, and Carol, I'll come to you in, about this in a wee minute, but you know we say it's, it's the reporter's job on the spot to challenge the judge, and we talk about it and kind of talk about it in theory, but then you actually had to do it for real. Yeah, I mean, I didn't challenge it at first because it's, it's quite standard. I mean, there were there was a reporting restriction on the grooming trial. The jury were out and they were going to bring back their verdict in a matter of days. So you never even thought to challenge it in the first place because it's standard procedure and uh, it was only going to be a matter of days anyway. But obviously over the course of the weekend, you've seen how important it was to correct people who had just a lot of misinformation. And it became much more prominent to get it out there despite the jury still being out. And it also didn't seem like it would have been really that prejudicial to the jury anyway to know that he had been arrested outside court um, it was sort of it wasn't that related but the judge was worried that reporting on that would lead the jurors to find his video which he had been ordered to delete so yeah it was all very it was all very blurred lines but um, I had been liaising with the Murrah's news desk over the weekend because I work for Reach so it's part of the company and they asked me on um, that about half an hour before court started on Tuesday morning to stand up and speak to the judge and just give me a couple of pointers and I tried my best to remember them. But you still had to just do it off the cuff and I, you, eventually you persuaded and what do you think was the winning argument? To be honest, I'm not really sure because I, I stood up and I said, you know, everyone, the Nationals have um, reported on it. Um, there's been a protest at Downing Street. It's definitely public interest. Um, the social media already has the information, but they also have misinformation. It's important to correct it. People are tweeting Trump saying that there should be, you know, they should, the US should declare war on the UK. We need to break this story and um, and the correct details. And he still said no. And then he received an email from the independent journalist. I don't know what that said. Um, and then he, at that point, that's when he said that he was minded to con consider. So I don't know if that had some more legal arguments. But he brought me back up then to speak to him again. And that's when he said, um, I just sort of, I think I just reiterated the same points I'd made. And then he said, OK, I'll lift it. So, Carol, you must have been um, kind of proud to hear about all of this, one of your students being able to challenge on, on such a big, big case. So proud. And in fact, this year, just a couple of weeks ago, when I was teaching open justice and how to challenge court exclusions and court orders, I had Steph's face up in our PowerPoint um, and making the students look into her. Um, so yeah, I was. We were tweeting quite a lot on the day, and I was supporting her. And then, obviously, as the day got more serious for her, with lots of trolling and uh, that problem, a lot of really senior journalists and influencers were weighing in to try and support Steph, because what she'd done was what she's taught to do in media law classes and court reporting classes, um, to fight for open justice, to challenge orders that you think can be overturned but unfortunately then had you know, a, a very serious, disturbing sort of personal backlash for her. And that's one thing we need to think about uh, going forward. Teaching students, I think, is 
that Wild West social media out there are not only breaking the law, which makes it harder for our students to understand why they have to stick to the law, when everyone else around the world and on Twitter and Instagram, Snapchat are just breaking the law, but also how we help our students be prepared for trolls and the backlash. Luckily, Steph's very resilient um, and did get a lot of support, but you know, it's bound to have an effect and I'm really proud how she's dealt with it and that she now wants to help other people understand that experience. It's, uh, yeah, we'll come back to that in just a moment, but I mean, from your point of view as a teacher, it's a bit of a dream come true that you've got a, a case study like Steph that you can say to students, well, this might seem theoretical, but it might just come around and hit you at one point without any notice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I always enjoy teaching it, and I always tell my students, I did this when I was 19, my first job at York Crown Court, and the judge took me into his chambers and gave me a cup of tea, and I remember the... Uh, cup and saucer shaking I was so scared but you know we have to let our students know you have to think on your feet you've got your McNeys hopefully with you at all times but you have to challenge it it's free it's quick use your brains think about all the arguments you've learned during your NCTJ media law and court reporting classes and be prepared to do it because the less we do the less chance we have of reporting things we should be allowed to report so yeah she will be in most of my law lectures going forward now and until the next one of our students or your students um, does such a great thing as well. Now we're going to hear more um, about the, the kind of safety of journalists and the stress of journalists in, in a moment elsewhere in the podcast because we've, we've been looking at that as well but Steph from your point of view um, you you seem to be almost kind of laughing it off but it must have been pretty tough those those days particularly when you've got such a a massive social media force like the EDL and all their supporters globally coming at you. Yeah, I mean, it, it was difficult. I think that the thing for me is, I think when you work at a local newspaper, um, one of the hardest things you have to deal with is readers' comments on Facebook pages. When it's about, you know, sort of much less high profile stories than this and a lot sometimes the things that they say are very infuriating and wrong but you have to you're encouraged not to reply to them and not engage in arguments with them but I think when there's just one comment from one reader on one local story that you've worked on that's can be very infuriating and very tempting to reply but when something like this happens and it's on such a scale where it's thousands of people and they're all also saying the same thing so it's not like they're all making different arguments um they're all generally saying the same things you just sort of realize th the scale and how it's not even worth engaging in arguments one by one anyway um so I think that allowed me to sit back and just watch it happen and then of course then the support started coming in from the industry and I think that sort of overtook it so I think I was sort of more focused on that than the negative I could see both obviously but I think that sort of I cancelled it out so it just it I guess it maybe that is what made it easier to cope with and a few months on has it pretty much died down now I mean it's sort of an, with this court of appeal hearing and things like that and with the groom and child coming out it's sort of an ongoing news story as well because of this story about the Syrian boy in Huddersfield um yeah I mean there, there, are, there are still people who who follow me I'm convinced there's at least one person who keeps making by the same name who keeps making fake accounts to come back and troll me um but it's yeah it's nowhere near on the scale as it was before 
Stephanie Finnegan and Carol Watson. And a reminder that you're listening to Bang to Rights from the MMU Journalism Unit. If you have a view on that, remember you can tweet us at RightsBang. Please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Because Stephanie Finnegan's experience at the hands of Twitter trolls may be at the extreme end of what journalists have to endure. However, two reports this week reinforce just how widespread the issue is. The Sky News presenter Kay Burley told Press Gazette that she's received death threats as well as blizzards of online abuse, while Amnesty International says one in five women across the UK report having suffered online abuse or harassment. Amnesty goes on to say that more than 40% of Twitter and Facebook users consider the platform's responses to abuse or harassment were inadequate. This came as Seamus Dooley from the National Union of Journalists told the House of Commons Women and Equality Select Committee that face-to-face -face abuse and harassment of female journalists remained an endemic problem inside newsrooms across the UK and Ireland. There is a culture within the industry that we represent of bullying and harassment. It's very much a macho culture and many of the... Did you say sexual harassment as well? Yes, yeah. And, and in our evidence... Uh, to previous inquiries which we've referenced in our submission and including our, our submissions well publicised to Leveson, that issue of harassment uh, and sexual harassment and, and gender discrimination come up again and again. So of course there is a link between that and an attitude to pregnancy as well. Uh, but uh, I think the issue, the culture within our industry is what is particularly pro pro uh, problematic and that, that's the blanket which covers all of the cases that we deal with. Seamus Dooley, the Assistant General Secretary of the NUJ there. Now, earlier this month, the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Burnett, told a news conference that he believed regulation of social media is something which is almost too big for a single country to deal with and that his instinct, as he put it, was that what was needed was a global response. But there are already some moves to try to curb at least some of the online harassment of female journalists in particular. The campaigning organisation, the International News Safety Institute, has held a round of talks this year with the major internet platforms to try to persuade them to tackle the problem. Hannah Storm is INSEE's director and she told me more. Everybody I've spoken with at the platforms has been incredibly open, they've been incredibly engaging, they see it as a problem that they want to help be part of the solution to, to fixing. So it's been a really good um, set of meetings, it's been really encouraging to work with our members as well at NC who make up many of the world's largest um, and most uh, well-known news media to try to understand you know, how do we mitigate risks, how do we help support people mitigate risks, is there a question of kind of um, individual approach or is it more institutional? Is it about policy or is it about product change that perhaps the platforms need to take on board as well? There are different responsibilities everybody has. I think the key thing from Stephanie's perspective is that um, you know she was absolutely, as you say, bombarded with harassment. A lot of it was completely and utterly inappropriate, unacceptable hate speech, sexualized attacks as well to her family, to her person. So in that instance, a lot of the time when we've had individual experiences where journalists have suffered similar, um, we've spoke, we've put them directly in contact with some of the platforms and they've been able to deal directly with those incidents. Now that in itself is not necessarily scalable. So, you know, what we need is more of, I think, more of a human approach from the platforms to understand that this can devastate people, but also from the journalism community 
um, in terms of solidarity, one journalist's voice is perhaps not going to be heard in, amongst all that noise. But if as a journalism community we come together and say this is not acceptable, this is actually challenging our ability to do our journalism work. And, you know, unless we have safe journalism practice, we can't have press freedom. Without press freedom, we can't have democracy. You know, we, so we've got to come together as a community. And then the institutions the journalists work for as well. We need to be more acutely aware of the fact that this is the new kind of front line of some journalism safety. So whether you're working in, in Leeds or in Manchester, whether you're working in um, Mali or in, uh, you know, Lima or wherever you're working, this can be um, a risk that you face as a journalist. And particularly, as I've said already, you know, female journalists, particularly it's, it's, it's striking for them. British institutions, UK institutions such as the DCMS committee are looking at the big platforms and there's there's some movement towards possible regulation of them. There is some movement um, in that direction, I guess, in France and Germany. But we're taught, you know, if, if you mention countries like Mali or or places in South America, it these are platforms with global reach. And, and do you think there is, I mean, how would that global way of tackling the issues, how, how could that come about? I think, you know, these are big organisations now and it's not for me to kind of, you know, either be a spokesperson for or against a an organisation. Um, but I think that they're, they're global platforms with massive reach. If you see the numbers of people that um, organisations are now recruiting, particularly like the communications divisions, for instance, of, of, of Facebook, um, they've got massive global reach. They're very, very acutely aware that this is an issue that journalists are facing. That doesn't mean that that they're doing things, you know, things are going to change overnight. It absolutely doesn't mean that. But let's not forget that I know that, it, that the platforms are responsible for, um, what's the word, kind of making that those that information go, go, go vast and kind of reach huge numbers of people. But it's about um, human beings that and trolls when you know it's not human beings themselves who are throwing this hatred out at people i'll give you an example of the philippines for instance there's a fabulous lady called maria ressa who some people may be familiar with she's just been named one of the time magazine's persons of the year um last week and you know she has worked um quite closely with facebook for instance in the philippines to to get various different troll factories closed down because um, social media was being weaponized against her and against journalists in the Philippines um, through the government there to try to um, effectively pull down and destroy critics of Duterte. So, um, you know, it's about journalists working with the platforms, I think, instead of saying, oh, my goodness, you are our enemy, your number one enemy. Um, and, the, and the platforms also pulling up their socks, also being more transparent. Um, and, you know, yes, there are arguments around policy and legislation. That's not necessarily for me to discuss now because I'm a safety expert rather than a um, sure. policy expert. Um, but I think we do need to all work together much more closely. Do you think there is a role for employers? I mean, keeping this at the level of the UK, um, that journalist organisations may may kind of come together, individual journalists may come together as a group. Um, what can employers be doing to to kind of safeguard the, 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 the physical, mental well-being of, of their own staff? Do you mean through on because of online harassment, or do you mean safety in general? Well, I mean, um, well, let's start off with online harassment. So I think it's absolutely crucial. I think that you know, rather than you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I think that's that old kind of mantra, isn't there? And you know, I'm not saying necessarily that you know we are 
this kind of well I guess sorry let me row back on that I think the probably best thing to say is we need to get our own houses in order too I think that's the, that's the key thing employers and employees themselves are also responsible for helping kind of you know they need to take responsibility for their own safety to an extent it's not always easy I appreciate that but doing things like locking down certain, certain social media accounts making sure that some of the information you put out isn't um, going to um, easily identify you and and it's going to be it's a bit like if you go to a war zone so i'm a journalist who's done a lot of work in safety situations if you go to a war zone you wouldn't go to a war zone without insurance you wouldn't go without a flak jacket you wouldn't go without a helmet so we need to have more of a conversation around what are the emotional and what are the online uh precautions we need to take when we're going into this online battlefield and some of it is about locking down social media some of it from an employer's perspective is about having those honest conversations with people about risk levels because actually i've been incredibly surprised in some ways by some of the media who hasn't thought it's a problem when it's a massive problem some of it's about making it more making people feel safer in themselves to come forward because we know for sure that a lot of people who face harassment of every different kind, whether it be online or sexual, often don't feel safe to come forward. And it's also about commissioning stories from diverse people, so diverse people rather to commission to do diverse stories. So if you know, for instance, a certain type of person is likely to get more abuse because if they're covering a certain type of story, as a employer you have to be aware of that and you have to take the measures on board it's not you're not saying that person cannot do that story because that would not be appropriate in some situations but what you're saying is you need to be more aware of the risks that people face in this kind of new online war zone as it were just briefly i suppose to wrap up i mean do you think do you think employers are more widely aware of that now i mean is is, are things getting better now than they were let's say two or three years ago I mean, I don't necessarily know that they're getting better because the ways, the techniques and tools that people are using to harass people and attack people online are differing as well. They're becoming more nuanced, much more, much more nuanced. I do think that employers are becoming more aware. We've done a huge amount of work over the last couple of years to make them more aware. We're not the only people that are doing that. There's lots of great organizations out there that are calling for some kind of degree of understanding, transparency, solidarity, making sure employers have the right policies in place, making sure they're having honest conversations with people about, are you okay? Do you feel okay? And understanding that actually, you know, when this kind of thing happens, because it's this virtual landscape, sometimes it's not tangible. You don't understand where it's coming from. And so it can have a devastating impact on your mental health. You know, imagine opening your phone at four or five o'clock in the morning and turning on your Twitter feed and suddenly hitting this barrage of hatred can be very, very undermining for your ability to do your job. And, you know, there, there are statistics out there that suggest that particularly younger people are actually potentially think looking about turning away from the industry because of the um, barrage of hatred they're likely to face. And that's something we cannot afford because we need people, brilliant people in our industry coming up from the journalism schools right the way through. So we need to be able to support people to know that it, it's going to be okay. We will support people, that we just need to find ways to tackle it and to mitigate those risks and then retrospectively to support people. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a responsibility that, that you know, journalism schools uh, like MMU and, and lots and lots of others are, are increasingly going to have to face. I mean, I guess that's a conversation for later. But um, Hannah Storm for now from INSEE, thanks very much for coming on Banter Rights. Thank you.
So that's Hannah Storm from INSEE. You're listening to Bang to Rights from Manchester Metropolitan Uni. And if you have a view on that, please get in touch on Twitter at RightsBang. But if I could turn to Deborah Linton now. Deb, you've been waiting patiently all this time. We'll come back to some of those issues around mental well-being in a moment. But I'm conscious that a number of our students here at MMU are already thinking about working in conflict zones after they qualify. Now, Hannah, there at the end of the interview, mentioned that no one should attempt to work in a war zone without, as a minimum, insurance and a flak jacket they're the absolute basics when it comes to this kind of thing aren't they yeah absolutely um i mean i absolutely would say no one should attempt to work in a war zone um and sort of go rogue or even be kind of brave and and try to go it alone um there can be sort of a conflict in terms of you know that natural desire of a journalist who wants to really chase after the original story and get to the absolute root of things and being sensible in terms of how you operate when you go somewhere like that you know you're not operating in the same environment you're used to um the two trips i went on so to iraq and to Afghanistan, Afghanistan in 2009, Iraq in 2008. Prior to that, I um, went to train with the British Army in Belize in the jungle. And all of those trips were what's referred to as embedded. And that is how most journalists, most of your broadcast newspaper journalists go out. And that that is to say that they are the trippers hosted by the Ministry of Defence um, and they are embedded with a military unit. Um, it's the safest way to go out there. It gets you the most access. The frustrating thing for a journalist is that sometimes you don't get to the real people that you really want to get to, but it is the most but it's the safest way to take access to a war zone, for sure. I remember a, a, a colleague of mine back in the day, he worked for, for the Independent in Southern Africa when we were both based there, and he spent a lot of time in, in Angola and Mozambique when the civil wars were in place there, and he said he always felt safer um, if he was... In, in an army truck and in a way it didn't it almost didn't matter whether it was the the state military or the guerrillas but if he was among soldiers he felt safer than if he was just wandering about on his own see that's really interesting because you mentioned an army truck but bizarrely for me it was the polar opposite so and the there's a reason for that when i went out to Afghanistan it was the worst summer of the war um it was that really awful summer where we'd seen like eight coffins come back at yeah. once and it was it was terrible and actually the trip was delayed because of of that and people were dying because of IEDs improvised explosive devices and typically they were targeting vehicles so actually my editor's main thing to me before I went sort of when I was briefed by my editor was please don't go in a vehicle don't go in a vehicle yeah. I did go in a vehicle <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I mean is I, I sort of made a judgment while I was on the ground um but um but actually vehicles were where I felt most nervous but but it but it but just that goes has to, to do with the circumstances no, of the correct. war at the time, there's doesn't no it? One and that, rule. That's a key thing, really, isn't it? Exactly. You have to know what the circumstances are on the ground to be prepared for that. Exactly. There's no one rule when you're going out to cover war. You know, um, there's probably things that can guide you and things that you must be smart and follow. But like you say, the conflict you were talking about, kind of, you know, you'd have made different judgment calls than the one I was in. Yeah. And so um, when it comes to if if you were 
if you were in a position now where you or I were advising students about whether they should look at a career where they're going to be, where they're likely to be in a war zone or likely mm-hmm. to be covering civil unrest, what are the kind of basics that would be in your kind of toolkit, whether it's a bureaucratic toolkit or whether you're, you know, whether it's in your rucksack that you're carrying with you? I mean, if we were to deal with practically, you know, practically speaking you simply follow guideline you know there's people who will tell you these this is the kit you need and you listen to them and you take that kit out and you know you are equipped with if again if you're embedded you're equipped with um, ministry of defense or perhaps if you're going to a region of southern of civic unrest excuse me you might go with um, an ngo or something and you know again these are experts and they will equip you with the practical necessities that you need um, i for example had the you know the navy blue journalists um flat jacket yeah. and helmet um and all the kit, and it's a lot of kit. I mean, it's nothing compared to what the soldiers are carrying, but it's, it's a lot. Um, and you do feel that little bit safer being in the, you know, being identifiable as a journalist, unless, of course, again, we were just saying, you know, each place can be different. You take each one as it's fine. There might be places where journalists are a greater target. Yeah. But that's that was what I was saying on a practical level is listen to those who know better. Um, in terms of kit for doing the job, I mean if you can even imagine when I went, Twitter wasn't even that big a thing. So it was a very different way of reporting. Um, But you take your basics and you take it as light as you can and you manage with as little as you can, Um, which of course there's loads of kits around for us to do that now. Um, Bureaucratically, um, I think it's simply about learning where where it's safe to push boundaries in terms of what you're asking for and what you're entitled to view as a journalist. So again, if you're on an embedded trip, you know, you go out and you're very aware that they've got a reason for taking journalists out there and it's essentially propaganda. Um, So you try and cut between it and try and make sure you get your own time to speak to the people that you want to speak to. So in my case, it was the soldiers who were serving, um, and some of the locals and that sort of thing. Yeah. But but knowing where to where to draw the line. So being a good journalist, knowing what's a story, knowing what's propaganda, identifying the difference and knowing what you want to follow and sort of knowing that, you know, yes, they're hosting you, but it's your right to chase the story that you wish to chase. Um, but then honestly, just not, not being brave where it comes to stupid. So yeah. Yeah. don't go rogue. The journalists that you hear of who get in difficulty not always at all but there are some where it may transpire that you know they've not kind of stuck to what was you know issued to them as safety guidance they may have tried to they may have felt under pressure or not but they may have tried to go after a story in an unsafe environment and it's at that point where you know you have to make a sensible judgment call as to what's worth what yeah, I mean, one of the other things, and I'll I'll put some links in the in the show notes to this, but there there are a number of organisations who are who are providing models for risk assessments. Um, mm-hmm. The National Union of Journalists, for example, after the two thousand and eleven riots, they drew up some guidelines and tips about how to operate safely in in ter- you know in circumstances of civil unrest, whatever. So there are guidelines out there, and we'll mm-hmm. you know we we'll be bringing those two students um, when we when we come to this hopefully in in coursework so there there is plenty of material out there and I think I guess one bit of advice would be don't ever don't even think about going into a conflict zone unless you have done some of this training 
and don't even go think of going to cover a riot unless you you've got someone watching your back yeah i actually i think with the proliferation of you know home news stories that have essentially involved some level of unrest lately um and obviously recent wars and the amount that journalists you know, from the UK are now having to cover in terms of the stuff that they're seeing and the stuff that they're involved in. I do think that organisations are kind of more aware than ever of the need to provide that ahead of time to their journalists. Um, I don't think it was always the case. I mean, the BBC, for example, I know has always been excellent at providing that kind of training. I don't believe it's the case that everywhere always did that. But I think it's, you know, the need for it is becoming more... Um, more, I think editors are probably becoming more aware of it. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for all of that, Deborah. Uh, can we just turn quickly to uh, one of the other aspects of what we're looking at here in the podcast, and that's the kind of mental pressure that journalists can come under. Um, we we heard um, Steph Flanagan, Steph Finnegan's case, um, where she was kind of bombarded with with abuse on Twitter. But mm-hmm. there's also a different kind of pressure, which is what the, the pressure that comes on journalists when they're they're in the middle of reporting. And and you and other colleagues at MMU. Um, looked at the pressure that was on members of the public and people who were involved in you know victims or bereaved families and so on in the in the arena attack mm. are there any what are the lessons that you've learned from that about how journalists need to kind of protect themselves under these kind of circumstances yeah so as part of that research and also just in conversation with friends of mine who you know are, are covering these events as part of their day job um, as journalists um, part of our research involves speaking to the journalists who've been up in Manchester and covering for the arena attack for example um, and dealing with eyewitnesses um, and at the end of each interview with them um, for, for this piece we did sort of make a point to try and establish how much support they'd had because it was quite noticeable that they all felt quite emotional more so than I think people imagine journalists do um, about what they witness and that summer there were a lot of awful home news events um, which the same journalists were going out to over and over again Um, and I think what what became clear is for example large news organizations might sort of tick a box and do what they need to do in terms of sort of having someone from occupational health contact one of those journalists to say, are you okay? Are you affected? Um, There are cases where, in fact, they were just contacted automatically as opposed to by a real person. Um, But you can see that they are affected. You know, journalists are human beings and there's only so much mental trauma that someone can bear witness to. Um, And I think that perhaps that, that awful summer, again, has made it pushed it to the fore that actually, you know, these people need to be looked after too. Them, They are being exposed to a lot of things and their mental health needs to be looked after. So I I certainly, you know, with my colleagues, would conclude that the mental health of journalists um, needs to uh, be paid some attention by um, those who are dispatching them to these um, stories. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting for me actually over the last couple of weeks since the NCTJ conference and, and the other bits and pieces of research I've been doing for, for this episode 
to see that there is there does seem to be the start of a kind of culture change really in the way that employers are looking at mm. their staff um, mm. who are involved in, in covering stories like this. I mean, Lucy Manning from the BBC, for example, last year she was covering the, the Grenfell Tower fire mm. and she spoke at the previous conference about the, the effect that that had on her and on other members of staff at the BBC and ITV and Sky and so on who were covering And what sort of things did she recount? Well, she did say that the BBC had put measures in place to help them effectively recover from that mm. um, and that that was now much more widespread across the organisation. I don't think it's perfect by any means, but there is a recognition now. And we heard this last week in the last edition of the podcast from Joe Webster at Reuters that they now recognise that trauma for reporters and subs on desk on news desks and so on can take many many different forms but that the employers have a duty of care towards the staff to make sure that they don't become that you know they don't become ill as a result of it yeah i mean there's i think you know as with everything times change but if you consider the kind of stories that we're having to to cover now terror attacks on home soil um combined with the pressure of the way the news is now covered um that, that's a lot for one person to deal with in one instance particularly when it's actually becoming a regular feature of a news cycle so i don't think editors have any choice managing editors have any choice but to um put mechanisms in place to ensure that help is available should one of their employees need it okay well Deborah, we'll leave it at that, I think, for today, because I'm, I'm almost certain we're going to return to this um, later on. But for the moment, Deborah Linton, thanks very much indeed for coming on Bind to Rights. We hope that once you're back on campus, you'll come back on the podcast again. Yes, please. Great. So remember, you can subscribe to Bang to Rights on Apple Podcasts. And as usual, you'll find us on Stitcher or you can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU's Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. Please give us a rating. It helps spread the word, helps others find us. Now, although we won't have weekly episodes for the next couple of weeks, there will be a special edition looking at the radical press in Manchester in the 1970s and 1980s. Hopefully that will be on your feed just after Christmas. Remember, you can tweet at us at RightsBang. Follow us for updates about the return of the podcast in the new year. And do let us know if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your reading which you want us to cover in future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. <laughs>